Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. Hey Unstackers, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Crypto Unstacked. We're excited to start off our new Investor Insights series. This week, I chat with Paul Verata-Tackett, partner at Pantera Capital. Now, before we get started, I do have to mention that Pantera Capital is an investor in Amber Group. In this episode, we unstack Paul's stories and experiences in venture capital over the past few years. Specifically, Paul shares insights into Pantera's edge, focus, and evolving LP investor base. It's rare to be speaking with an industry veteran who's worked alongside hundreds of founding teams since 2014. So I definitely appreciated learning about Paul's perspectives on the space. Also, if you guys didn't know, this podcast has a YouTube channel. Search for Crypto Unstacked and watch our interview. Paul has a pretty neat Zoom background. Just saying. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, Paul, good to see you and welcome to Crypto Unstacked. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to be part of this. Yeah, likewise. Paul, you're a household name in crypto. Our audience is likely familiar with who you are, so I don't want to make you retell your entire uh, coming to crypto story, so to say, but the 30 second rundown and you can fill me in with any gaps uh, is that you spent a lot of time in the Bay Area in the States for the better part of this last decade, you've been in venture capital and during this time have primarily worked with emerging technologies, first in the mobile industry and now, of course, in crypto. You've been with Pantera Capital for six years now, having scaled the investment platform and the team, of course, significantly your board member and advisor to several projects in the space and sort of the list goes on. Uh, but clearly you're in crypto for the long haul and have seen a lot. What's it like being a crypto OG and having a hand in growing this young ecosystem over the past couple of years? You did a really good job stalking me. That is a, <laughs> that is a better background than I think I, I could have done for myself, especially in 30 seconds. It, it does feel good to be part of the ecosystem for such a long time. I think it, it kind of just shows that you know, I was willing to, and Pantera was willing to sort of take that risk and have that conviction so early on. And I think that it translates well to entrepreneurs because 
the reason of why we got into this space is really driven by you know, our desire to see disruption, our desire to see change and less about, you know, making money and coming in during a bubble and, and all of that kind of stuff. We were believing before everything got really big. And so I think that brings a lot of credibility and a lot of trust to entrepreneurs. And I think for me, it also gives me an advantage uh, when I try to provide value to our entrepreneurs and to potential portfolio companies. Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's kind of how we win deals. That's kind of how we stand out is really what can we do for our entrepreneurs. And by having been in the space so long, I've been able to see a lot of things and I've been able to withstand a lot of volatility and I've been able to sort of deal with those experiences, you know, lessons learned in the past in terms of making mistakes along the way. But you know, for me, a lot of things don't phase me anymore. And a lot of challenges that come up, I've sort of seen in the past. And I think that's great. And then along the way, I've been able to build up a lot of great connections. And especially when things are just getting really hectic in the space, you know, DeFi is exploding. It's great to be able to lean on those connections to help companies or to basically do diligence on companies. I can say, hey, I'm not really sure about this company, but you know, I've done this in the past uh, recently. Tintin, what do you think about this? You know what I mean? Like you've been able to, to see a lot and you have more visibility over that region, et cetera. And so I can lean on portfolio companies. I can lean on people in the past that have been helpful to me or people in the past that have certain connections that can be valuable. So I think, I think all of those things come in really handy when the space is, is this crazy and crowded. I think also uh, what really helps Pantera and myself stand out is all that time of being in the space, I really tried to build communities globally. And I think that really stands out. I mean, compared to other US investors, you know, I really wanted to go out to Berlin and really understand how that ecosystem was evolving, you know, because of our thesis around investing into companies in different geographies for on ramps into crypto was able to travel to Latin America a few times, was able to travel to Hong Kong, of course, Beijing, Singapore, Thailand, even to see what's going on in, in Southeast Asia, India, Middle East. And all of these travels have really given me insight into what's going on in crypto in each of those places. And I think that really just kind of helps me think about where crypto is going to make, you know, some of its largest impact and how I can get some of our companies over to those regions. So I think that that was really helpful too. You know, last year, you spent a lot of time in Asia, as you just said, right? Coming to cities like Hong Kong, Singapore, other cities in, in China. What's your take on the crypto scene in Asia versus the West? And are you still, I guess, actively looking at projects based out here now, even though you yourself can't travel out here? Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll answer it in reverse order. Yes, I mean, we are investing all across the world, whether it is Asia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's Latin America. And, you know, we see different types of opportunities in each of these geographies, but especially in Asia, you know, I think, I think for us, it's important for us to have really good partners like Amber that are, you know, what I think are sort of like central players in, in, in the geographic ecosystem and can really just give us insight on some of the entrepreneurs. At the end of the day, we're looking at great teams. You know, I think ideas are important too, but 
ideas can change. Teams can change too, but I think for the most part, teams probably going to stay uh, at least the founders intact for a while. And so we want to make sure that we are investing into really, really great teams. And that means that whatever geography, we need these local partners to give us insights. Now, in terms of the types of companies that have been more appealing to us in Asia versus maybe some of the other geographies, I think in terms of just retail speculation and retail meaning non-funds, non-LP-based entities, people that are managing their own money or a group of people, syndicates, things like that. I mean, all of those investors are all based in Asia. And I think just because like there's maybe a bit more restrictions around investment opportunities and just a little bit more risk-taking mentality and the desire to have liquidity and be able to make money in a short amount of time, people have gravitated towards crypto as that way of moving money in terms of potentially speculating. And that means that, you know, when we look at Asia, we tend to look at infrastructure platforms that really help to facilitate that retail speculation. And that's really how we came across Amber was really like the fact that these exchanges that are in Asia are very, very fast moving and they're restrictive and they're fragmented. And so even just the, you know, just solving the problem of how do you be able to execute on trades and be able to enhance the, you know, speculative interest in the retail side and even potentially in the institutional side like us by having a platform like Amber. And so for us, like we're continuing to sort of look at that retail speculation infrastructure side. And we do think that there will be other types of use cases that become a bit more similar to what we're seeing out here uh, in the West in terms of maybe enterprise blockchain or maybe stuff on the application layer, maybe stuff around scalability, things like that. But I think first and foremost, what's really driving activity in Asia is retail speculation. And therefore, most of our investments in Asia have been around exchanges, have been around trading platforms and potentially around other sorts of of tools that facilitate potentially institutions coming into the space, even though I think we've seen in both the West and the East, institutions are not quite there yet. But yeah, most of our our investments uh, in Asia have been just all around speculation and we really just rely on those partners to give us those insights. Right, and speaking of trading applications and infrastructure, I'm curious to know if you have a personal story you can share about a crypto application you used or tested really early on uh, for trading or perhaps investing. And tell us a bit about your experience as an early user of crypto applications, perhaps way back in the 2015-16 era, really before the abundance of trading platforms started to come online post the 2017 boom. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, up until 2017, really, you know, what, what most people were doing were, was probably just going on Coinbase, Circle, or any of these other brokerages and just buying Bitcoin. You know, they're buying Bitcoin and maybe some of the early traction around using Bitcoin was around one of our portfolio companies that didn't end up taking off, at least in a very large way, but at least started thinking about 
what we could do with crypto uh, potentially in a, in a way that was a little bit more mainstream. So I don't know if you heard of a company called ChangeTip. This was a way for you to easily send cryptocurrency over Twitter. And all you would have to do is just, um, you know, and then there were a couple of different use cases for this. You could basically thank someone for really good content on Twitter and just say, wow, that was, that was great insight. Here's a, a beer or here's, you know, some sort of moniker that would give them a tiny bit of uh, Bitcoin. And all they would have to do is basically accept it and a wallet would be set up for them and they can claim it. And it's just, this is just think the crypto really, really social and really built around micro payments and content monetization, et cetera. You know, again, payments for tiny bits of things that you can do using cryptocurrency that is very tough to do using fiat currency because of, you know, the limitations around uh, payments and, and minimums and things like that. So those are kind of like the small things that were happening, but it really took 2017 in terms of ICOs happening to really just kind of get me, you know, using newer platforms and uh, platforms that, you know, are probably a bit more risky these days because, you know, once you start using Coinbase and some of those other uh, platforms, they, they did start making it a bit easier to send crypto to each other by using emails and whatnot. But now you're participating in these ICOs where all you have is, an Ethereum address and you, you have to basically like use parity and you'd have to uh, send money to these Ethereum addresses and there was no recourse whatsoever. And so for me, I remember downloading parity and making sure that it's in sync, trying to find the right Ethereum address and then be able to organize syndicates with people because it's more fun. It's almost like what you're doing right now in terms of, in terms of liquidity mining and farming, where it's a lot more fun doing these things with people because everybody has their own perspective. Everybody can help curate information together. Everybody can look at whether this thing is a scam because, you know, this guy is technical, this guy knows the founder, like it, and, and all of this and being able to sort of coordinate payments across all these different entities and sending test payments and then starting to send real payments and then trying to, uh, so basically what we were doing at the time was trying to get into these ICOs, sending payments to this random address, trying to figure out how to add new tokens onto Parity like you are with MetaMask and then hoping that these things work and these tokens get distributed looking onto Etherscan and trying to figure out like, okay, did I do it correctly? Is my transaction through? I mean, this is such a headache. I think that gave me confidence that I, I could do it being a non-technical person, but you know, for most people, they wouldn't be able to do it. And it just kind of really showed how far away from, from mainstream we are because we're still dealing with all these addresses and there's not a lot of clarity on if I'm doing things correctly. And there's a lot of risk involved too. And even right now with farming, I think it's the same sort of thing where now it's getting even more sophisticated. And I just couldn't imagine mainstream folks really understanding how a lot of this stuff works. But I think that was a milestone for me in terms of really just kind of seeing in 2017 using Parity and, and participating in these ICOs, how far away we are from the mainstream. But it also kind of showed me how cool crypto is because I'm able to do this, you know, this is different than farming. I'm able to do this with, you know, at the time, maybe $50 or $100. I'm able to 
invest in these early stage companies. And as I'm sending payments to these smart contract addresses or sending payments to each other, I'm able to see that I'm able to send money from US to China almost instantaneously by just paying for gas at the time, which was really like 30 cents. Now it's much different, but I was able to send a lot of money with just 30 cents without having to go through banks. I mean, to me, that was that aha moment, like, wow, like payments can be so much better using cryptocurrency. That's definitely very fascinating. You know, one question I constantly run into when I'm learning about or playing with a, a new technology is like, how did someone think of this? Like one superpower I love is to be able to anticipate the needs of the world and build all of the cool primitives uh, for others to iterate on top of, you know, and, and crypto constantly impresses me and humbles me in, in this respect, in the sense that the pace and breadth of innovation is simply incredible. Um, and I've only gone full-time in crypto for the past, I would say, two years or so. Um, and, and Coinbase was the first application I ever used to get my first Bitcoin. This was back in like 2013 or so. So I'm very thankful for Coinbase for having been around for, for that long. As an investor, you know, you get a sneak peek of these really cool projects in advance of the rest of us. Uh, you invest in a lot of early stage stuff. How do you determine the viability of a project or put in a better way, perhaps validate the product market fit, uh, especially in an immature market, right? So for example, you were talking about crypto prior to 2017. What was it like to do diligence these companies when there weren't as many comparables to speak of? Yeah, no, I, I think I, I see a couple, uh, at least two questions coming out of what you just mentioned. I mean, I think it's how do you evaluate companies in its early stage, but then also how has that changed over time? You know, especially when we were looking at the space in 2014 and, and how it's changed until now. And so, you know, I, I guess if I were to sort of start like um, kind of more general and then kind of, you know, maybe go more specific towards how, how things have changed over time. I mean, in general, it really is tough to invest into early stage companies. Um, you know, it really just depends on what stage you're doing it to. I mean, for us, I mean, we, we weren't always this big. Um, and, and, a, and a function of that was you have to get people to really believe in you. And I think a lot more people believe in the space now and believe in us than, than there were in 2014 when there was just a lot more risk in the space. You know, was Bitcoin going to get hacked? There was only Bitcoin. So what if Bitcoin doesn't work now? Bitcoin hasn't gotten hacked. Ethereum hasn't gotten hacked. There's a lot more diversity in terms of technologies out there. There's a lot more traction out there. There's more clear, a little bit more clear, maybe not as much as we'd like on the regulatory side, but you know, it's been de-risked a little bit. In the beginning, I mean, we were more of a pre-seed fund and that meant really just investing into teams and ideas. And that just meant what made sense in terms of getting cryptocurrencies out to the masses and that meant like well if we were needing a, you know a company like coinbase to really kind of get crypto out to more people then it probably doesn't seem like coinbase is going to dominate the entire world right away i think there are advantages to having local entrepreneurs local branding marketing strategies that are local 
and folks that really understand the regulations in a certain geography, things like that. And so, you know, that's why for us, like we're betting on teams at that point in certain theses like local exchanges in certain use cases. And some of the use cases that we were thinking of were around payments. You know, we felt like, hey, cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin, can act as a really good store of value for a lot of areas that sort of needed it because of inflation, because of, you know, the government, things like that. And we were starting to see this every single time there was a crisis in Greece, every time there was something going on in Argentina, the price of Bitcoin and people just going to, to buy cryptocurrencies really just enhanced. I mean, we're seeing this right now in terms of the pandemic. A, a lot of our exchanges in emerging markets are seeing Bitcoin and stable coins really get a lot more adoption because people are fleeing to assets that are, are pegged and assets that are sort of non-correlated, things like that. And so, you know, that was one of our theses, theses around local exchanges, theses around cross-border payments, remittance companies. So we started investing into the application layer, companies that were using cryptocurrencies as rails to, to move money across borders, micropayments. That's why we invested into companies like Earn.com and companies like ChangeTip that could really, you know, just kind of get more and, and, and even platforms like Mechanical Turk using cryptocurrencies, things like that. Uh, maybe even companies that were, you know, incentivizing uh, payments using cryptocurrencies. Now we, have, well, now we see a whole bunch of them that have evolved into like Lolly, which is sort of like honey for cryptocurrencies going back or maybe like Flexa. So that use case continues to evolve. And then, you know, now it's expanded over to other theses around trading infrastructure, speculation, maybe some enterprise stuff, scalability. And a lot of these, like, you know, since we are now having a larger fund, we do have the luxury of waiting a little bit to not the pre-seed round where we're investing maybe $250,000 in either leading or participating in these like $1 million or less deals. We are now sort of graduating to maybe, you know, two to $3 million seed rounds and, you know, maybe four to seven million dollars well, four to $7 million series A rounds where we are looking at the team, but we can then start looking at the product itself. There is something mm -hmm. and we can start looking into the traction and really understanding, you know, what the users really think about it. How sticky is this product? What sort of competitive advantages, you know, these guys have to getting out to market? What sort of abilities they have to really scale in terms of growing a much larger user base? And so there's just a lot more information that we can dive into. One of the things that's been really great is, and that's kind of how we came across Amber, is that we can try out some of these products. And because we have different parts of the business, uh, we not only invest into early stage stuff, but we actually do active trading. And so our trading team really can test out a lot of the trading products like Amber and we were users of Amber and we were like, okay, well, we see a lot of value in this. Um, we can see a lot of other similar funds seeing value in this and then eventually hopefully retail institutions and so some of our investments have actually come from us being customers and I think that makes a ton of sense too because at the end of the day I mean if you're looking to add value to these companies if you're a customer and you can be a case study for these for these vendors that you're investing into and potentially help introduce them to a bunch of other vendors because you are a customer, because you're an investor, 
then that just brings a lot more value to these guys. So that's sort of how we're looking at deals right now, where we can wait a little bit more and look at all those data points. And hopefully we are a customer of, of some sort. You know, if we're going to pay for something, might as well have that money go to building shareholder equity. I guess your second question around how the spaces changed quite a bit, it was much more difficult back then. The first thing that I did when I joined Pantera in 2014 was I try to market map the entire ecosystem and try to understand what was already out there and what type of spaces were interesting. And that's why we got to, you know, companies like Bitstamp and Zappo on sort of the wallet and security side to, to circle also in that side to emerging markets like Bitpagos to some domestic exchanges like Trade Hill. And then we started getting into, you know, more applications and infrastructure, but there weren't that many companies out there. So once I saw there were only 20 or 30 companies then it's like, okay, these are the ones we have to go after. And then we're just kind of waiting to see who comes up with ideas that kind of fit our theses. But the teams were a lot different back then. The first believers in cryptocurrencies were the cyberpunks and the libertarians and the one-off developers. And, you know, as, as you can see right now, more mature companies like Coinbase, like Amber, you sort of need that combination of both strong technology, but also really strong business sense and really strong sense of community. And a lot of those companies really just only had really one person or really a technologist. And so we've been able to see those companies evolve from just having a technologist or a technology focused team to then 2015 and 2016, having more business folks come in and 2015 and 2016 were kind of more MBAs and enterprise folks that were coming in. And then 2017, we started to see more Silicon Valley type or more serial entrepreneurs, the guys that had built companies beforehand that really wanted to bring some of the, you know, true company building side over to, you know, this space and, and pairing it up with some really strong technology. And then I, th I think that just continues to evolve and evolve where we're just seeing more experienced entrepreneurs coming in. Uh, in addition to that, like we're just seeing better balance of teams and you know more clear strategies on how to scale. And I think that's just really, really important for the ecosystem. It de definitely makes things a little bit easier to make investments now because we do feel like you know companies that are raising capital have more of those components uh, sort of baked into the DNA of the, of the company. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. Pantera is now one of the largest crypto funds. Uh, your third venture fund, I believe, uh, which launched way back in 2018, recently raised $165 million there, thereabouts in its final closing. Can you talk more about what's been driving interest there? What are you hearing from your LPs now, perhaps some of them who have been with you, right, for the past couple of years? Why do they want more exposure to crypto now? Yeah, 
There's definitely some interesting insights that we've seen along the way. So I guess to take a step back, Pantera is structured a, a little bit differently than some of the other funds out there, but it's in line with other funds that have been around for some time. So, you know, 2014, when you're raising capital, you know, I think, um, you know, without having Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies and tokens, you know, people were investing into companies, you know, companies that were generating revenue. And so, you know, outside of our Bitcoin fund, that's when we launched our first VC fund. And that VC fund is primarily investing into companies that are generating revenue. And that started off, you know, fairly small. It was a 25, I mean, it grew to about 50 million, but let's just say 25 to $50 million pre-seed seed fund for blockchain and cryptocurrency companies. And the only people that we can get into the fund were really family offices and high net worth individuals and maybe, you know, maybe some corporate entities here and there, some VC funds, but they were all just, you know, smaller size checks. And then starting in 2017, that's when we launched our ICO fund. And, you know, we sort of consider that more of the maybe high risk, high octane fund because you're getting in super early, but you're getting in at really good prices. And, you know, some of these, some of these token projects really just kind of explode in terms of the returns in a really short amount of time. And, uh, you know, that, that had its own set of um, parties that invested. And those were really just, you know, again, the same sort of crowd, high net worth individuals, family offices and corporations and some VCs, but, and then, and then the same sort of thing with our digital asset fund, but I actually think our digital asset fund, which is our active trading fund that we launched, um, we can talk about that a little bit more, but like um, on the VC side of things, we've sort of graduated to now about $190 million venture fund three. And I, I think one thing that continues to be the same across all of the three venture capital funds is we sort of know that our winners are probably gonna take a bit longer than some of the winners from some of the other traditional VC funds, just because, you know, the space is, uh, you know, just just because of the education involved, because of, you know, having to go through regulations and things like that, um, you know, it, it may take a bit longer to realize some of your really large winners. But I think what's um, what's also helpful is that the space is moving so quickly that we, we think we are going to see a lot of acquisitions happen. You know, again, one of our recent companies, Blockfolio, got acquired by FTX for $150 million. And so we are going to see companies that gain traction, gain some revenue, et cetera, that fit in really well with some of the, um, you know, larger crypto companies or maybe some of the legacy payment companies, Facebook, PayPal, who knows, and you know, will find a good home as they are starting to gain traction. And so that will provide some earlier exits for, for some of our LPs. But for the most part, you know, it is going to be a longer time horizon for some of our winners. But, you know, we do feel like the winners that do emerge can be very, very substantial because of the markets that they are targeting. You know, our LPs sort of know that. I guess what's also different is our LPs are becoming more and more institutional. We are starting to see endowments and sovereign wealth funds and other folks that had been looking at the space but you know the conversations in 2014 were really what is bitcoin 
what is mining? Why are there 21 million of them? You know, what's the security concerns around this? How is it going to get hacked? So really, the education that's been happening over time has just really, really helped, you know, move along these conversations where it's now talking about why cryptocurrencies and why blockchain will provide asymmetric returns, great diversification portfolio. What are the use cases that are actually gaining traction? What sort of vision do you see that's going to make this space really get to what it looks like later on? And, you know, the conversations are more about how this kind of fits in, why we need exposure, why it's exciting right now, what we're sort of seeing than just kind of the basic bare bones. And that just kind of means that institutions are really looking at this as a way to diversify their portfolio. And they are right now interested mostly in our digital asset fund because they are later stage companies that have tokens. And there's a lot of scalability that you can put into tokens right now versus early stage ICO projects. You know, there may be sort of limitations on how much you could deploy right now, especially as there's a lot of volatility in terms of tokens in general, uh, you know, those companies kind of getting off the ground, issuing and getting liquidity. These later stage token projects, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the top 50 coins, you can deploy a lot of capital and you can use a lot of insights on the private side and a lot of data to make really good decisions in the short and medium and even long term. So institutions are interested in that side of things, the liquid side of things. Um, especially during a pandemic. And then, of course, uh, they enjoy liquidity too. And then also on the venture side of things, because a lot of institutions, they already have an allocation towards private equity and venture capital. You know, that's what they've been used to investing into, you know, larger, more established like VC funds like Andries and Sequoia, et cetera. And so they can kind of fit the venture side of things into that bucket. And they can already see some of the companies on the venture side of things either getting exits like you know blockfolio or bitstamp or any one of those or they can actually see other sorts of traction you know amber etc just really seeing good revenue coming out of it so that's kind of what we're seeing right now is that you know there there is increased interest and a shift over to a different demographic for our lps but at the end of the day depending on your risk and reward and volatility profile you know we give we give options to different types of investors based off of what they're most comfortable with Right. That's a great point. You know, investors, when they come into the space, they have a variety of instruments and financial decisions, I guess you can say, um, that they can make in the space now that wasn't available to them before. And the most important thing right now that I think Pantera is able to provide is track record, right? That's probably one yeah. of the first questions that your LPs ask you. It's like, okay, great. I understand your thesis. I understand your investment approach. What is your track record like? And mm-hmm. I think Pantera is one of the few funds that can say, well, let's date back all the way to 2014, you know, and, and, and you can really see how we've been either growing with the space, uh, growing with certain portfolio companies. If one didn't work out, here's the reason why, here's what we learned from that. And this is why we've, you know, changed part of our thesis according to what we've learned in the past, right? Whatever that may be, you have things to say, and I think that's why investors appreciate going to a fund like Pantera, is that you have more to speak from as opposed to just, oh yeah, here's what we saw in 2017. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, the track record is huge. We can point to a lot of experiences and a lot of successes and a lot of things that we have learned from. I also think really, I mean... 
other things that, that really stand out about us, I think, are, are really the geographic focus in terms of us wanting to invest outside the United States and wanting to build communities outside the United States. And I think outside of that, it's really the team, which is, is sort of unique. I mean, I think Dan's background, you know, having come from Tiger Management and managing both a liquid portfolio and managing institutional investors, I think really just checks the box for a lot of folks that uh, want that stamp of approval to manage institutional capital. In addition to managing now more liquid portfolios with cryptocurrencies, I think Joey's back on with Augur and a lot of the experiences that he's been able to sort of gather on the operational side and especially on the technical side. If the new thing is to basically get upside through liquidity mining and the biggest returns are from getting in early, someone's got to be able to you know, hopefully de-risk getting in uh, as, as quickly as possible. And if you're able to actually understand the code and read the smart contracts before you start dumping in money for liquidity mining, then that's going to be hugely an advantage. And I think for myself, I mean, just having worked with so many entrepreneurs since 2014 and having done so many different deals, whether it's from the community side, the value add side, the strategy side, everything. I mean, I think it, it just kind of, there's just a lot to lean on and just like previous experience in venture capital, business development. And so I, I think it's the strength, but also the complementary part of our team where none of us are the same. If you put us on like a Venn diagram, there's like barely an overlap. We're so different from each other, both like generation, uh, generationally and also just skill set wise. Paul, I read your July blockchain letter. This is something that Pantera publishes on Medium, or perhaps you you also put in your own sure. stack. And in that letter, you wrote, you could think of Bitcoin as the first DeFi project. And it's not yeah. a common statement we hear in crypto, right? Usually we associate perhaps Ethereum with DeFi as it's the most popular base layer that's being used right now. Sure, sure. Um, can you tell us more about Pantera's conviction there and exactly what you mean by Bitcoin being one of the first DeFi projects? Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you have checked out that letter. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we have been doing since 2014 and will continue to do is really, I mean, now the need isn't as great as uh, in 2014 when no one was really talking about the space and we had to go out there and we had to become thought leaders and publish things and host conferences and, and et cetera. And now I think we're expanding to doing the same thing. We continue to have the investor letter, but we also have my personal blog. We also have Joey's Twitter, which is basically like his own blog and like all, the, all these different tweets. I can't, I can't handle them as much Twitter as Joey. He's just, uh, he loves that platform. We continue to get our voice out there. And I, I think what also is a bit different is there's just a lot of funds out there and a lot of smaller funds that are focused on DeFi and maybe other KOLs that are focused on DeFi too now because they know that there's so much momentum there. And, you know, a lot of the DeFi stuff is being built on Ethereum because again, like it just offers a lot more flexibility. And for us, like we think of decentralized finance as just, you know, any sort of platform, uh, any sort of asset that is not controlled by sort of a, you know, a centralized party and has the ability to really remove intermediaries. And that's kind of what Bitcoin is, right? I mean, no one controls Bitcoin. Its security is, is decentralized 
and people can use it to route around intermediaries like banks for payments or uh, or store value for banks. And so it really is truly, you know, the first DeFi project. And therefore we've invested into Bitcoin. We've invested into a bunch of companies that have used Bitcoin, but you know, here, here we go with Ethereum and, you know, now it, it, it really allows you to do more applications and, and further decentralized by having things around stable coins, uh, things around lending and borrowing and any sort of decentralized like asset management and things like that and so you know it's just a different you know level of decentralized finance and uh, a lot more programmability but you know at the end of the day i mean we're continuing to be very very active in in DeFi, and we just kind of see it as an evolution of DeFi. and so for us like we're going to be investing into uh, a bunch of infrastructure that's built on ethereum but we also think that you know i'm wearing this near hat i'm a big fan of near we're investors in near we're investors in polka dot you know we're not doing every layer one but we are doing select layer ones select layer twos are going to help with scalability and you know i think on top of each of those we're going to see infrastructure that's going to help bridge developers with the underlying platform and bridge use cases with the underlying platform and so we're going to make some of those investments there too and so i think for us like we're just going to be very nimble in terms of being platform agnostic in terms of being open to many different use cases some that are established some that are new and it may be a little bit tougher for just anybody in general to make a, a little bit more noise right now because there's just so much noise out there but i think for us like we just continue to stay the course you know we feel like we've been investing to DeFi this entire time and mm -hmm. our our number of companies that we consider to be DeFi just continues to grow and go we're actually going to come out with a really cool market map of what we think are sort of DeFi projects that we've invested into and then beyond that like we probably have like a good five or six uh new investments in the last two or two months so i think we're being very very active in the space one of the biggest questions right now people have about DeFi, given what you just said, which is the explosion of applications over the past year or, or so, I'd say, you know, as more protocols continue to be released into the wild, the risks will continue to increase. And I think that's plays into part of the thesis of, of why people are looking to other base layers is to perhaps spread the risk so it's not all concentrated on one protocol. What are the biggest risks you see in DeFi today and what tools do you think can be built to enable greater automated risk management solutions to mature the DeFi space even more? Yeah, you know, we're starting to see these things called fair launches where people are forking projects or spinning up projects in a really short amount of time and letting the community own the project in a majority of the way or maybe even completely and while these things can be spun up really quickly you know the big risk with these projects are that the code or the smart contracts are unaudited it's one of those things where to audit smart contracts and to do it properly whether it's working with one firm or working with many firms costs money and so these folks, I mean, since there is no pre-miner, there is no investors involved, they don't want to put up the money and they want the community to decide whether it should have 
audited smart contracts and contribute to the money that's needed or set aside certain funds to make that happen. And so uh, that's been the strategy for a lot of these newer projects like um, Sushi and Swerve and, and, and all these different things. And the fact that for investors to get in early means you potentially get the highest yield uh, while you're providing liquidity. It provides a lot of risk because BZX, again, just got hacked for another 8 million. There's other attacks that have happened. And even just something, you know, I wrote about Swerve in my, my blog post last week. You know, a few investors, they ended up investing into Swerve, but through a fake Swerve website. And so whether it's like fake websites that are happening to code that gets compromised, those are all really big concerns these days for those types of launches and projects. And therefore, I think for us, it's continuing to evolve there, being able to have the right firms and the right technologies and hopefully the right automated technologies and scalable technologies to make it safe for everyone to participate. I think that's number one, really helpful going forward. I think number two is just continuing to get a bit more regulatory clarity on what works and what doesn't work in different jurisdictions. But I think that's going to be sort of ongoing. I think another one is around, like you mentioned, scalability. It does work right now on Ethereum, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's two risks with scalability. One is that you just end up having the rich get richer because <laughs> you can't have democratization of community and diversity when it costs like $50 a transaction and you need to do multiple transactions to get uh, into a certain new project or protocol. And therefore, like, it's the same people just moving from one protocol to another protocol. We're not really kind of getting this out to the mass or potentially if there are security concerns that do happen, it becomes really tough to move assets anywhere because it just takes a long time for that to happen because of the gas costs or because of just log jams and things like that. And so we really do need this to evolve. And the great thing is we are seeing contenders emerge, whether it's near Polkadot, you know, Solana has got the whole FTX crew behind them now and then everything. And so I think that's good because at the end of the day, for a long time, Ethereum was the only dog. And when you're the only dog, it doesn't help you move without competition. Now that you have competition, then I think it really just kind of helps people execute in, in, in the most timely way possible with the utmost quality, with sort of that sense of urgency. And I think, I think that's exactly what's needed for a space is really just you know, more, more enhancements on scalability, democratization of access that'll help with even governance too, because you, you need all of this kind of revolves around transactions and transaction costs. And then of course, just a lot more, you know, security and, and some more things around uh, regulatory clarity. But if we get all those right, then I think there's a lot of potential. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like I can talk to you for, you know, really another hour just specifically on DeFi and how your thesis perhaps has evolved to in, include other types of applications when it comes to the infrastructure side of things. You know, we haven't even gone to talking about the growth and explosion of decentralized exchanges, um, yeah. which, which has been super, super surprising. If you haven't been paying attention to the space, you might think Coinbase has been the biggest dog for, for a long time. But in reality, now we have, you know, folks like Uniswap, right, who are, are you know, doing larger volumes than Coinbase on some days. And that really wasn't even expected six months ago. Yeah. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but yes, yeah, that's incredible. I guess we'll have to have a part two where I come back and dive a little <laughs> bit deeper into DeFi more applications. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Perhaps after your um, market map is, is introduced, yeah. we, we can do a deep dive on, on that. Um, that would that, actually be a great segue. I agree with you there. Right? right? <laughs> well, as we wrap up here, I just have two closing questions that sure. I'd love to get your take on. And they can just be short and sweet. What's the hardest piece of feedback you've given to an entrepreneur? over the past six years? Yeah, you know, the, I think the hardest feedback that you can ever give to the entrepreneur is really just directed toward them in general. And I think it's whatever would, would potentially be taken as offensive, right? And I think the most offensive thing that you could say to an entrepreneur is probably, you're not the right person or you're not the right team. And, you know, I think a lot of people do sugarcoat that or don't even say that at all. And I, I think the more honest the feedback, the better for entrepreneurs, right? And so if that is the case, I mean, I do, every scenario is, is different, but you know, if you can relay that message in the right way and, you know, whether it's, hey, I think that, you know, you're a tremendous individual, these are your strong suits, but these are what I see are your weaknesses. Do what you want to do with that. And that could basically be alluding to, you need a business partner or you need to amplify the team this way, or you need to do that or this. But like, I think that's the toughest conversation usually is when you are potentially saying to someone that they have weaknesses and they have to improve or they have to amplify, um, you know, with having other people around them. And I think logically they should get that, but some people take that as, you know, uh, something that is very, very offensive. And so that's probably one of the tougher feedbacks that you can kind of give to a company. And what's one of your strongest convictions about where crypto is headed? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about crypto and I do feel like there's a couple of different things that I, I think about that, that maybe some people don't agree with and, you know, that could be a, a long discussion on, on why, but I do feel that, you know, while I think Ethereum is likely going to do very, very well, I do feel that people are sort of discounting how fast some of these other communities are are building around you know new scalability protocols like Polkadot and Near. And I think they can really make a dent into some of the communities that have been around Ethereum and really move a bit quicker around scalability and even provide some of the tools for developers and users to really get involved. So I don't think it's as you know, clear cut that, you know, uh, Ethereum is going to be a winner. And I'm really excited to see how these other platforms evolve. So I, I think that would be one thing to sort of look out for. I think the second thing to look out for would be, you know, now that we're seeing a bunch of tokens go out there and really be focused on the community, I'm interested to see more established companies and not established as in, like the, you know, the Facebooks and, and those guys, Reddit's like they, they could be getting into it, but 
really like companies like in the series A to C range that have a bit of traction, but that can take a little bit more risk because they aren't the, the huge incumbents that are potentially, you know, getting threatened by all these other startups. But, you know, how will they potentially think about a token and how it fits into their business? And how could they potentially have their existing business work hand in hand with these new community governance tokens? And is there a way that, you know, they can really benefit from having a token model, you know, with the existing user base that they have, with the existing technology, product, et cetera, if that ends up working together and we start seeing not just new startups issuing tokens, but existing companies issuing tokens and more and more communities getting built, then it just increases the, the size of the market and increases the potential user base. And I think potentially could accelerate cryptocurrencies and tokens getting mainstream. And so that could really 10x the space. And you know, that's something that I'm continuing to monitor to see if that yeah, is, is going to happen sometime soon. For sure. Social money, I think, is one fascinating topic that I'd love to pick your brain on in a future conversation. There's a ton going on there underground right now, I'd, I'd say, in, in crypto. But you know, as soon as the Facebooks of the world start to see the value of this type of experimentation and what it can really do to grow their network effect, I think it's going to be massive. So, Paul, you're on Twitter at BaratAttackIt. Are there other ways our audience can get in touch with you or keep up to date on your musings about the space? Yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at, um, at BaratAttackIt. Also on there is a link to my blog, which is BaratAttackIt.com. And, you know, if you don't know how to spell, you can just go to my Twitter, the link's there. But I basically write about the space on a weekly basis. And it's mostly just interesting news that I'm seeing, plus interesting topics or interesting companies that, you know, I'm seeing or involved with. And beyond that, I mean, I'm pretty approachable. If anybody, you know, is interested in, you know, chatting or letting me know about things or, you know, wanting to get some feedback on some certain things. Like I, I have this like zero inbox policy where I read every email every single day. And so they could just shoot me an email at paul at, uh, at, at capital.com and I'm, I'm pretty responsive. Paul, appreciate your time on Crypto Unstacked and we'll look forward to bringing you back very, very soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leslie. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.